0: This episode of Tub Talk is brought to you by Linode. Visit linode.com forward slash tubtalk and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trust Radius. From their award-winning support, offered 24 by 7 by 365, to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Linode offers the industry's best price to performance value for all compute instances, including shared, dedicated. High memory GPUs and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible, allowing you to focus on your customers, not your infrastructure. Visit linode.com forward slash tubtalk and create a free account with your Google, GitHub, or email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com forward slash tubtalk for $100 in credit. Hey everyone, Richard here, back again, and my guest today is somebody who I've wanted on the podcast for a long time. We've had some near misses, but we're finally here today. I'm speaking to Todd Kane. He is somebody who is hugely well-known and respected within the MSP industry worldwide. He's worked as the VP of Operations for the award-winning MSP Fully Managed and has led technology teams for several of the largest and high-growth companies in Western Canada. Todd now acts as an MSP consultant to some of the most successful IT businesses in our space, and his record is really impressive, including doubling the revenue of several companies and leading double-digit increases in margins. Above all, though, I consider Todd to be my go-to guy for KPIs, key performance indicators, in the MSP space. This is a man who is, dare I say, obsessed with performance with dashboards, with key performance indicators for managed service providers. Todd, welcome to Talk, my friend. It's a pleasure, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Oh, and and we've waited so long to get this interview done. We've had a couple of near misses, uh, but we are here now. We were just talking before we came on air over in Western Canada compared to the UK, how we're finding things in this sort of COVID times and getting out and about there. So how have have, uh, the MSP industry, how has it fared in Western Canada?
1: I would say very well. Um, you know, I think in a lot of cases it's it's a tale of two companies. Uh, what I've seen is the co- companies that are much more the MSP pre- predominant business model are faring very very well. The adoption of outsourced IT services and the reliance on IT services as a whole has been uh, huge. And uh, I've seen several companies that have grown, you know, uh, 50 to 70% uh, year over year throughout the pandemic. So it, it's been tough, no doubt, um, the, the the change in the approach to the business and the shift to work from home and some of the complications of how do you do on-site. And it's not been without its problems, but... Uh, most of the MSP-centric companies, I, I would say, are doing quite well uh, from a business standpoint. Um, a lot of pressures, a lot of uh, uh, stresses on on sort of mental health, and those things have, have been a challenge. Um, but the the businesses that are more focused on sort of the VAR side of the business, project and product, uh, have uh, have struggled a little more than the MSP predominant companies, uh, just seeing that the inconsistency on projects and certainly the early part of the pandemic, there was a a sort of a brief pause on projects and product sales. So they hit a bit of a dip there, but uh, more and more, it seems like things are kind of getting back to equilibrium in what we saw before. Um, Things have accelerated forward. The businesses are different uh, than than they probably were, say, two and a half years ago, but
0: uh, everything seems to be kind of getting back to the new normal, I guess we would call it. Yeah, and I'll say a public thank you here to you as well. I know I'm not alone in this, but your emails that you send out, uh, you sort of send it on a a, a very consistently on an intermittent basis though. You, You write, don't you, when there's things on your mind and you share them with the industry. And I've got some real gold from some of the things that you've talked about there. Not just KPIs, but your finger on the pulse of the industry, service delivery, all manner of things. So thank you for writing those emails.
1: Oh, I appreciate it. I, I I try to make it useful and and not just sort of uh marketing. Um I, I the 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 tagline I I use is uh uh no fluff all good stuff.
0: <laughs> and that definitely shows through. So I think anybody, you know, we're going to talk about KPIs today, but anybody looking uh for an insight into email marketing Uh, and how to do it by providing value, sign up for Todd's email newsletter, if I could call it that. Sign up for Todd's regular uh, messages to the MSP community because you'll find a lot of value in them. Todd, I'll rewind a little bit though. I alluded to your journey in the managed service world. Of course, you're an MSP consultant now to some of the top MSPs, not just in Western Canada, but worldwide. Uh, But you've been in the managed service space for a little while now in various roles, haven't you? So tell us a bit more about that journey.
1: Yeah, So I started originally as a tech, uh, so I was in the trenches. In fact, I uh, had my first IT consulting company before I graduated high school. So uh, I was going to school with a tie so that I could uh, manage the uh, internal network for the school as well as looking after some clients after school. Uh, then I got absorbed into a larger consulting firm, went through this cat, this uh, absolutely crazy growth phase where we were literally hiring uh, 20 to 30 people a week. And so got a crash course, my, call it, uh, my MBA in life on, on <laughs> growing a business at, at an insane scale and not sort of breaking things along the way. And that gave me a real strong exposure to the operation side of the business. And that's where I switched over from the technical doing to the technical management managing, um, which was not necessarily the, uh, the the direction I had thought that I would go in, in my life, but really, really got a, a taste for it and saw that I could actually influence and and provide a positive influence on uh, some people's lives. And that became really, really cool. Uh, so I worked for a couple of consulting organizations to do turnarounds, uh, brought them from a bit of a bloodbath of red and a sea of of uh, non-profitability and helped them turn those businesses around. And then last stint was at... That, uh, fully managed, which was uh, in a post-merger hangover, combining two companies and uh, helped them to integrate the two companies, uh, grow the team, grow the revenue, grow the business. We, uh, we doubled, uh, almost tripled headcount and uh, almost tripled revenue and increased margins by double digits. And what I found is all the things that I was doing along the way were... Uh, sort of from a standard toolbox. And there was no secret sauce to this. Each of the individual companies were different and required different things, but I was able to draw upon sort of a similar tool set from my experiences and what I'd learned. So I realized I could probably take that Back to my old consulting roots and do on a one-to-many basis rather than a one-to-one basis inside companies, and and move back to uh, consulting with MSPs to apply that that same tool set around. Uh, you know, what are the things that you need to be successful? How do you implement them? How do you grow and scale your business uh, with those ideas in mind? And it's uh, it's been great. You know, I've been doing that for close to seven years, um, and you know, it's I, I kind of joke. We're all in the same business. We all do the same thing with IT delivery, um, largely from the same business model, and none of us do it the same way. So each of these businesses is its own unique puzzle with uh, people and processes and problems all kind of being slightly different. But it's been a ton of fun, and and it's uh, really rewarding to see both business as well as personal and professional growth for the people that I that I work with. Yeah,
0: and what type of companies, what type of MSPs are approaching you for help? Can you share with us sort of some of the reasons they get in touch with you and how you help them out?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I'm sure you you've seen some of this as well. Like you you tend to focus a, a fair bit on helping organizations with uh, with uh, with different parts of their business and scaling as well. And what I find is people often approach me not with the actual the actual issue in their business, but they approach me with with sort of a uh, a visible problem. It's
0: yeah. uh, you know a it's, surface it's, problem. It's, yeah,
1: right. It's a bit like an iceberg. You know, they're they're like you know <laughs> I have this problem on the surface. I don't think I use my tools very well. as usually. there's some focus on technology or tools. Uh, So that's usually where people find me. Uh, And then what we start to discover is that the problems are often much more systemic and and usually rooted in something else around, uh, you know, culture or management framework is something that I focus a lot on in just helping people to be intentional about running their business. And a lot of people, you know, as as people can appreciate, you get into this business as a technician and wanting to do great technical things. And over. time end up with a fairly successful business, which was not really what people thought about or banked on or planned for when they got started and often kind of feel that they're a bit out of their depth and not really sure what to turn to. Um, They look for advice in groups and conferences from the tech tribe and things like that, which is super helpful for them to get perspective, but it's also not personal, right? Because like I said, everyone does the same business and they do it in a very similar fashion, but the problems are still individual and they struggle with sort of the application of how should I approach this? What should I do? Uh, You know, I may not be, if I model myself off of someone else in the industry and do the things that they're doing, it doesn't always work because those people are in a different place, a different market, uh, a different structure for their business. All things are, are not, they're they're not sort of rip and replace and, and sort of plop things in. So I tend to describe myself as not really prescriptive about the business. I won't tell you, you know, here's a 300 page binder. We're going to start from page one. We're going to do all these things to get started because, you know, eventually you'll, you'll, you'll find some value in that. But I, I consider myself much more consultative in figuring out, you know, where do you want to go? Where are you right now? And then let's build a strategy that gets you from A to B. Uh, and that is usually the component that I find is missing for people because, uh, you know, they, they go through these growth problems, right. That, uh, what got you here is not necessarily what will get you where to where you want to go, and that those things are are understandably difficult because you don't necessarily have the experience or the or sort of the the tools to draw upon uh, that that will uh, get you past the parts that you're struggling with in your business, right? Yeah,
0: you mentioned it earlier, and you know I uh, don't do so much work directly with MSPs. Big part of the Tet Tribe, uh, you know, global online community for MSPs, much like yourself. But when I did do one on one sort of consulting and coaching with MSPs, I increasingly came across the issue that you talked about. MSPs will approach me and say, hey, we need help fixing ConnectWise, or we need help fixing Autotask, or we're not using our RMM. And then you get into the business and you find something more systematic, you find something to do with the culture, or dare I say, the owner's um, personality ego, uh, you know how they deal with people within their business. So, so let me ask you, Todd, if you're able to share, when you come across those situations where the business owner comes to you and say, hey, we need help with our RMM, and then you get into it and you think, oh man, you, know, you are building a house on sand here. There's no way you're going to, fixing the RMM is going to fix the company. You have got a cultural issue. How do you broach that really difficult subject with them?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I often describe this as a, a company's culture is often a reflection of the owner or the, mm. or certainly the leadership. Right. And I, I find that that's consistently true. And that's not a thing of the IT industry. I think that's business as a whole. Um, so that, that is certainly true, uh, that, that there's a reflection, uh, that exists there. Um, sometimes there's an awareness that, you know, the, 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 the issues are more systemic and, uh, there's maybe a surface awareness of those things. People will opt, like one of the questions I, I often get get asked the most is how can I make my team accountable? And that to me is sort of a, a red flag that, you know, there, there's not an intentional approach to management and potentially there's some productivity and cultural issues, right? Uh, um, but I would say, you know, how do you expose this? So it probably comes back to KPIs and dashboarding. And this is a large reason why I focus on this is because uh, it removes the subjective nature of how you view your business, right? Uh, what's your headspace? What do you pay attention to? What do you deem to be important? All of those things will color what you see and what you focus on in your business. And they're not necessarily the right things. It's just maybe what you feel comfortable with or what sticks out like a red uh, a sore thumb to you. Uh, but if you if you get intentional about reviewing some of the industry standard metrics, it, it's really uh, fun and, and kind of exposes a lot of things that you may not have otherwise seen. And one of the things I start with uh, most often is SLAs, so service level agreements. And I get a lot of pushback on this and people say, well, you know, I don't promise anything to the clients, I, I, I have no SLAs, it doesn't feel important to me. And that's not what's important about them. Uh, SLAs are very useful as a measure of the sort of the consistency and the pull through of the productivity in your business. So how long is the life cycle of a ticket is a very natural thing that you should ask in your business, because that's fundamentally what we do with mo- with at least 50% of our day is managing and uh, addressing and closing tickets. So, what I'll do is often establish some of these numbers. We'll review some of the dashboarding and the metrics that we start to pull and say, okay, so your average time to acknowledgement is four hours and your average time to resolution is 36 hours. And people go, bah, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. No, no, no. We, we close tickets much faster than that, right? Like, okay, well then let's figure out why your system tells you that this is how long it takes. And what you often find is it's process issues, right? It's people set tickets in the wrong status. People are mismanaging tickets tickets get lost because there's no practical systems to make thing and make sure that these things flow through the the systems properly and so we're not talking about using SLAs as a guarantee to the client around what you're what you're saying how quickly you can uh, acknowledge and resolve tickets. It's how uh, how quickly uh, can we resolve these things internally, and how are we measuring the efficiency and the attention to process and detail within the, within the team? So it's much more an internal measure. That I, that I find it being useful for, then it is an external measure. Once you get to a point where you are actually proud of the numbers, then by all means, commit to the to the clients and say, you know, we're we're more than likely we're uh, uh, comfortable with the idea that we're going to close all tickets within eight hours because over the past three months we've demonstrated it actually take us about three or four hours. So we're the more more than comfortable. Say on average, we're, we're closing tickets in about eight hours, but it's an internal measure more than an external measure
0: that is the most powerful argument i've heard for slas at, at the, uh, for msps certainly at the smb the small and medium sized business level you know i've gone on record it's one of my sort of soapbox uh, topics Todd. we've talked about this before but you know i've talked about slas actually if you're referring to an sla contract with a client perhaps in a dispute you've already lost because the relationship at the SMB level means you know that's broken down. If you're looking at contracts, there's something seriously wrong there. But what you're saying is these SLAs should be a measuring stick for your inter- internal performance and to measure it, as opposed to being something that you either uh, show off to the client, unless you're really good at it, or you beat the client up with it and say, well, the SLA says we've got another two hours to respond to that, which we both know doesn't work. So that's a, a really sort of powerful argument you give for SLAs there.
1: Yeah, it's a, I often say the uh, the most dangerous words for an MSP
0: are, can you send me a copy of the contract? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so so let's let's deep dive a little bit deeper into metrics, key performance indicators, KPIs. I've always been taught from really early on uh, to manage an MSP, to manage an IT business by metrics, not by gut feeling. Why would you say this is important? Because I see so many MSPs who do not measure things within their business and they literally go on how much money they've got in the bank, whether they feel as though things are going right and literally sort of a lick a finger, put it in the air. Yeah, things are going well or not.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because another one of the, the, the KPIs that I'm, I'm quite insistent on that people have access to and be able to reference is uh, customer satisfaction, so CSAT score. And on a number of occasions when I recommend this to people, I have owners push back and say, well, uh, I don't, I, you know, I'm not really comfortable having that tool because what if the numbers are bad? right? Like that's such a crazy response. Wouldn't you want to know that, that your clients <laughs> literally are literally sticking your head in the sand on that one, isn't it? Literally. Yeah. It's crazy. So uh, I think one, there's two things is what I referenced before is, is having an objective measure for your business. It's okay to go by gut feel like they're they, the entrepreneurs are quite comfortable with this because, you know, the, the sort of muscling their way through things is how you build a business for the first few years, regardless when you start. Uh, but at some point you need to start to marry up that subject. Objective feeling with an objective measure. Um, the other part that I think is really important around this or around utilizing KPIs is as you scale, keeping track of everything that's going on in the business is absolutely impractical. And you see this with people that want to review every ticket before they close it. So the service manager or the owner is reading every ticket to ensure that it's it's good. And they, they've QA'd that, that ticket before it closes. That's fine if you have 10 or 50 tickets a day even. But you get to 100, 300 tickets a day, that is not going to work, right? So you need to start to think early on, what are the scalable measures that I can put in place to be able to monitor the business and be comfortable with what's happening in the business, but not to the extent where I'm I'm spending my entire day reviewing other people's work in in the service board. That just doesn't make any sense. So a uh, big thing that I'm, I'm huge on in, in management is management by exception, right? So you want to look, you want to set what are the things that I expect from the business. What are the KPIs that I measure? What are the ban, uh, sort of the, the good, uh, the bad, and the ugly of what those numbers could and should be, right? So dashboarding uh, with some KPIs using color coding is really, really helpful for this. And this is, I, this is sort of comes back to my experience at FM where we were maniacal about dashboarding KPIs. And the reason why is that every department had dashboards that would hang over top of them. So as I walked the floor or even when I was just going to coffee, I could glance up, look at those dashboards and see, all right, everything's green. They're ticking along. I'll ask if they need any support or they need anything, any direction for today. But otherwise, it looks like they're doing well. Pass another department. It's yellow. Okay. Hmm. I'll maybe snoop around, check out some things that may be happening there, or if it's red, then, you know, I know exactly who to talk to about that KPI and ask, you know, do you have a sense of what's going wrong? Do you guys need any support? Is there anything that you're lacking? What's the issue here? Right. And it helps you to be able to uh, influence the numbers before they get bad right so you need these lead and lag measures and most people are focused on lag kpis where you know what are the results right but you also want to look for lead uh, kpis so that you can catch these things before they become a problem and a lot of people will say uh, for example it's a good example would be uh, ticket closures right so you get to the end of the week and you say oh wow ticket closures are really terrible this week well that's too bad because there's nothing you can do about it. Hopefully, you have a better week next week. But if you're reviewing ticket closures, say at ten in the morning, and you say, "Wow, teams only closed ten tickets this morning. We should, uh, you know, based on trend and what I expect, we should be closer to twenty-five to thirty by by now." So, who do I need to talk to? Who's potentially underperforming? I'm going to go chat with the service manager and see what's up, right? So, those things give you the ability to spend time where you need to. And not just spending time collecting all of this information, having conversations, digging around and hopefully finding something. It's a much more intentional way to view the business so that you're spending time when you need to, where you need to, without having to be everywhere
0: and driving yourself crazy with that. So that's what I describe as management by exception. I love that. In, in terms of reviewing the metrics that are there, um, are, are there any specific tools or formats that you prefer? Uh, I know you're a big, uh, dare I say, dashboard geek, and I I mean that as an absolute compliment, there, Todd. But uh, share some of I your know, uh, <laughs> share some of your wisdom with us. Are there any tools or ways that you present information to your MSP clients?
1: Yeah. So honestly, my favorite tool is Breakage, um, mm-hmm. uh, and it's largely because. Uh, it's able to represent the data in a very visual fashion. Uh, and you're able to manipulate and mash the data very easily without a lot of coding experience. Uh, so I'm very comfortable with with kind of taking those tool sets and, and being able to, to uh, create automated reporting, create some dashboarding, custom gauges, all kinds of stuff. And I kind of have a standard set that I typically build for clients that I'm working with. And, and it's interesting because all the people that, that I come across that have gauge. I would say 80% of the time they say, say, well, how do you use it? They're like, well, you know, honestly, we got it maybe last year, a year and a half ago, and it was great. Everyone was very excited. We we put all these TVs up on the wall and we have these dashboards, but I don't think anyone looks at it anymore. <laughs> and, it, and it's because they're they're not sort of paying attention to the data and helping the team to understand what those things mean. And it requires a lot of tweaking and customization, right? So, you know, if you're monitoring SLA, but you're not filtering based on SLA boards, then those numbers are incorrect, right? So you have to actively kind of manage these things and look at them. And, and sort of tune them over time. And that's not necessarily someone's skill set. So I, I do like the, the breakage as, as a tool set for being able to uh, kind of create that living set of data that you're managing both on an hour-by-hour hour basis as well as a week-by-week week and month-by-month month, uh, performance level. Uh, Power BI is good. Uh, I find it really practical for people that just want to get in there and kind of mash some data and manipulate some things, but it, you know, it, it still leaves a lot to be desired around its uh, ease of configurability and, and and data representation and things like that. Uh, I've seen some clients using Cognition 360, which is good from a data lake perspective. There's a lot more sort of uh, um, data accessible and, and a lot more ma- manipulation that you can do on sort of a broader level there. but uh, otherwise you know hopefully at least get some reporting from the PSA. I find the PSA reporting is understandably fairly limited, uh, but it's a great place to start if you have nothing else at least, to get you to, you know, what are what are three or four numbers that the service manager, whether that be a, a manager in the organization or the owner of the organization, whoever holds that service manager hat needs to have some of that data accessible to help them to view the business, as I said, on an hour by hour basis and a day by day basis at the very least.
0: Yeah. Now I've had a conversation with Tom Welton, Philip Morgan over at PAX Eight, who are doing some really interesting things with dashboards and how they present info. We sort of came to the conclusion that you know this whole industry thing about um, a single pane of glass. Oh, we get a single pane of glass. We'll have all the information there. Uh, I I don't believe that exists. I believe that. Um, There's multiple panes of glass there. there. And not in a convoluted way, but it's a case of somebody in service delivery does not need to see the same info as somebody in finance. And somebody in finance is not going to want to see the same sort of info as somebody in a management role. What's your thoughts on this whole concept of a single pane of glass? Uh,
1: I think it's good in theory. I would at least like the sort of the reporting and presentation layer to come from a single place. It's not always practical, but if you have sort of these BI tools like Gauge or Power BI, you can draw from multiple sources, right? So uh, will you have a single pane of glass for viewing the entire business within the PSA? Very likely not. Uh, from within the RMM, guaranteed not. Right. So you can't view these things from inside of a tool. But if you take a tool that can draw on multiple data sources, then you're at least sort of halfway there. The other half of what you mentioned is um, the, the sort of overrepresentation of data is definitely an issue. And, you know, I've seen people build these dashboards that you know have 12 gauges on it uh, and it's put up on the TV and everything's too small for anybody to read them. They're not color coded. It's just information overload. And the uh, more is not necessarily better. Right. Uh, They I kind of describe data and and dashboards like a tapestry, right? So individual components are are not representative of anything themselves, but you put them all together, then they start to make a bit more of a coherent picture. But then, if you add too much, it just becomes too busy, and no one can make any sense of it. So, compartmentalizing some of that data becomes really important, and creating dashboards that are are sort of dual purpose, um, uh, or I guess separated purposes. Sorry, that one is a dashboard that may you may put on a on a on a on a TV somewhere, and it's a visual representation of some type of work or uh, of a department, and you want that to be fairly clean, right? Like uh, uh, it's called the in lean practices, it's called the five second rule. You should be able to glance at a dashboard and in five seconds, you have an understanding of what that entire dashboard is telling you. If you can't glance at it and get a sense of that, it's too busy. Uh, But uh, So that helps you slim down the things that are sort of publicly displayed or provide sort of fast informational sources. But the other ones that I build are uh, very detailed and you may scroll through several pages. Like the ones that I build for a service manager are pages and pages of gauges. And the reason why is that they can scan through that a few times a day and judge, what is this telling me? Does this help me ask any questions? Is there anyone that I need to go see to ask uh, ask them to help me complete or uh, to figure out what I'm seeing represented here? Are there any trends that I'm concerned about and I need to sort of rally the team and, and have us focus on something, right? So there's different dashboards for different purposes. And you shouldn't put everything together unless you're doing like a goals board, right? So some type of a um, uh, one-page plan or a, week, a weekly measure. And even then, you should probably break them out into departments to understand who's accountable for those individual gauges. Because if you just have a bunch of data and say, you know, we're underperforming, what should we do? Everyone will just sort of stare at each other like, I don't know, you got any ideas, right? So there needs to be individual accountability represented in, in the gauges if you're going to be measuring them on a uh, sort of a scorecard weekly or a monthly basis.
0: So do you have a um, almost a crib sheet uh, over the type of or the number of KPIs that MSPs should be measuring in each department? The reason I ask this, Todd, is I speak to uh, so many MSPs. In fact, I was on the road this week and I spoke to one MSP and I was like, oh, tell me what you're working on this show. And they said, well, our priorities are A, B, C, D. E F G H. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's a lot of priorities. How are you possibly going to focus on all of them? And I think you know the analogy towards uh, metrics is very uh, similar. If you've got too many numbers there, you just sort of turn off from them. So, is there a you know is there a figure? Is it one? Is it three? What does it look like for, for each department?
1: Yeah, I think it would vary from department to department. Um, I think at least three to five metrics for each department is probably appropriate. If you're past eight, it becomes really difficult to sort of figure out how are these sort of paired off against each other, mm. right? So if, if one is really underperforming, how much of a problem is that? Uh, that becomes really tricky when you have you have just too many data points. If they're in different departments and there's different accountabilities representing those, then um, then uh, 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 as long as you're kind of containing that number um, to an individual uh, accountability, account- accountable person, then that's a little easier to represent. But if you just say, you know, I'm the owner of a small MSP and I've got 60 metrics that I track on a weekly basis, you're going to be overwhelmed in the same way as trying to manage everything, right? So you need to understand both what are the industry benchmarks? What do those things tell me about the health of the business? Uh, what are a good representation of lead and lag measures? Uh, and what, uh, uh, how does that help me to affect the business? And I think that's a big piece. So there can be things that may get popped in and out, right? So for example, a client that I'm working with is has been very focused on uh, their tech to node ratio. So number of technicians versus number of assets under management. And that is not necessarily something that all MSPs would focus on, but their intent is to get a little more lean and to be able to scale the business without adding bodies in a one-to-one ratio. So th- that's something that is a near-term focus. It wasn't always on their, their weekly scorecard, but it's something that they're trying to consider and and factor in. So depending on what you're trying to achieve, there's always going to be different KPIs that you could potentially draw upon. And then there's sort of a, a base set that I was... I, that I tend to suggest for a lot of organizations, so like from a service standpoint, I can kind of just rip through a couple uh, here and people can, uh, this will be available on a blog post that we can that we can follow and up with. And as we'll, we'll include
0: in the, the show notes, Todd, links to all of your blog posts, because <laughs> trust me, listeners, when I say this, Todd has got a lot of good blog posts. We'll include all of those rather than people trying to scribble them down. Yeah, I try to
1: uh, I try to go based on quality and not quantity. So you know, my blog posts tend to be fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred words versus sort of the the three to four hundred. So it's not just sort of random thoughts. I, I take a, a fair bit of time. There's not a lot of blog posts because I, I try to be uh, quite detailed about these. So I, uh, you can follow up on these. I've got one for the business metrics that you should use and one for the service metrics. So for example, the service metrics that I like to use are uh, average time to acknowledgement, average time to resolution. Those ones are pretty standard. Uh, The kill rate or close rate, which is basically uh, the percentage of tickets closed versus opened on a single day or a single week. Uh, Average hours per ticket. So how long does it take on average for each ticket to be closed? This is really important from a uh, efficiency and effectiveness measure. Uh, Customer satisfaction score, age tickets. So things uh, that are just taking too long to close. Versus stale tickets, which are tickets are, that are unmanaged or unmonitored over a period of time, and then expensive tickets. So things mm. that uh, you generally don't want tickets to take more than four to six hours, right? Under an MSA, if you're working on something for more than four four to six hours, it's either a huge gnarly problem or someone missed selling it as a project. And this happens a lot, right? This is a really really interesting measure um, that helps people to understand. What, potentially why the hour average hours per ticket is so high. And in, in a lot of cases, we're just giving away too much work, right? Like someone says, hey, can you upgrade uh, our accounting package for us? And they're like, yeah, sure, no problem, I can do that. Like four and a half hours later, they've upgraded three accounting packages. And you're like, wait a minute, like, is this a part of the MSA? Like, technically, I guess it is, but did we miss selling this as a project, right? So th- there's a ton of those things that that uh, that can go wrong. But that's sort of the, the, the base stack of... Uh, of the service delivery metrics that I would suggest people focus on.
0: Brilliant. Let, let's dive into some of those. I've got to address actually, you said about expensive tickets. I've never actually seen it referred to in that way before, but it's such an important metric. You know, I tell a, a story from when I ran my managed service provider business, and we actually had a single ticket that came back with 25 hours logged on it. I kid you not. And when I, I dug into it, I was like, what on earth has happened here? And it was a case of what I now refer to as bulldog engineer. It was like an engineer had got hold of the issue. They were going to keep going on it until they got it fixed. It was actually a Windows Mobile issue, showing my edge a little bit there. Um, but yeah, they got it resolved. And the engineer, when I went to speak to them, was he was really happy. He was like, well, we kept on it, and we kept on it, and we kept on it. We got it fixed. And I said, great, but let me show you the profit- profitability of our managed service agreement as a result of this expensive ticket? And did you also realize after 15 minutes, 30 minutes, you could have escalated that to Microsoft and they would have gone away. And as the vendor, done the hard work in the background, running around trying to find the solution, and the client would have been just as happy with the result. So it's a difficult conversation to have with engineers to say, look, appreciate your sort of vigor and vim going at this ticket, but we need to make money doing this. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult balancing act, isn't it?
1: Yeah, hundred percent is, and and you you speak to what I see like being the case across most organizations is that the techs often want to hero their way through the tickets, yeah. and that's not always appropriate. Like I appreciate where it comes from, in that they're they're looking to satisfy the client need and and to provide a lever uh, a uh, some value, but that's not always appropriate. In exactly what you're talking about, and uh, having them understand. Uh, the profitability of those those contracts is really really critical because you know we make good money uh, if we set up, set this business up correctly we have a lot of leverage and that our our sort of time to effort ratio needs to be uh, in in check. But if someone buries twenty five hours on a ticket, you've just sank the profitability for potentially the next couple of months yeah. in that in that contract, and that's not appropriate. So often what I say with the expensive tickets is not necessarily that you need to sort of set like a uh, like a barrier. Like, they, like you're not allowed to have tickets go more than eight hours because it becomes unprofitable. That's not necessarily the right approach either. But why I, I have that as a measure for the service manager is being able to eyeball those tickets that do become more expensive and have uh, in their head at least a plan. So they need to talk to the t- the tech responsible and potentially a more senior tech and say, do you guys have a plan that I believe will be able to resolve this ticket in a reasonable amount of time? Versus like, hey, there's an expensive ticket. Well, you know, Joe's on it. I'm sure Joe's got a, got a handle on this. And then next week, you're like, whoa. That tickets 10 hours. Um, okay, well, uh, maybe it's just a bad problem. Next week, 14 hours, week after that, 24 hours. What's going on with this, right? So it it, get, it spirals out of control really quickly without some level of attention and just sitting people down and say, all right, this is obviously a problem. Tell me what your plan is. Do you need any support from the rest of the team? What do you need in order to drive this to resolution? Oh, okay, you need to escalate to, to the vendor. Well, let's do that right now and see what they can support us with or you know, whether or not, we even need to work on this at all. Right. And and that attention to the, that, those expensive tickets is more important than the the limiting the amount of hours. Right. So just being focused on driving it to a resolution, uh, it has to be visible for that to be a practical way to address it. Right.
0: Yeah, makes absolute sense. And I want to return to the conversation about service delivery uh, metrics. You know, you you listed a, a number of different metrics there that MSPs could measure. I want to come back and ask you specifically, what are good figures? What are bad figures in there based on your experience? But before we do, so bear that in mind, before we do, we were talking about money, and I want to keep that conversation going a little bit. So, are there any financial metrics that you recommend that MSPs track? We've got a wide variety of people listening to this podcast. We've got owners, we've got technicians, but the owners listening are going to be like, "Todd, tell us whether we're doing well or not well." Because as we have said, there's a lot of MSPs relying gut feeling when it comes to, you know, they look at the bank account and say, "Yeah, it's all good." but they don't really look at profitability of contracts and so on. Any financial metrics you can share with us? Yeah,
1: hundred percent. And as you alluded to, uh, business owners tend to focus too much on revenue. Mm-hmm. Right, Re- revenue is a vanity number, and it's important because it me- it helps you to measure the size of your business. But it certainly doesn't tell you how well the business is run. And people generally just tend to focus on, well, I'm a, you know, I'm trying to get to a million dollars. i I would like to be a five million dollar MSP. I'm a ten million dollar MSP. Woohoo! But none of that really matters in a relative fashion because I have literally seen one million dollar or uh, MSPs that make as much money in net profit as a ten million dollar. MSP. Yeah. So, which do you want to be? Because I can tell you, the ten million dollar MSP is a hell of a lot harder to run. It's a hell than of a million dollar MSP. So, yeah. yeah, if you're going to make the same amount of money at the end of the day, which one do you choose? Right. Uh, so that that's really important. And two factors that are that are key there. One is gross margin on service delivery, right? Because uh, that is really important for the business owner to understand because it's a lever of efficiency for your service delivery, right? So you contain all of your cogs in salary and tools costs within uh, that managed service business compared against the revenue. And that gives you your gross margin on service. The other part why that's helpful is that that's a number that or at least a percentage that you can delegate down to the service manager, because uh, all factors in, they have a pretty direct control over that cost of delivery, because that doesn't factor in how much you pay for benefits and rent and phone lines and equipment and all kinds of stuff, right? So so that's a great one to be able to split out and and uh, and give uh, give some accountability to the service manager, so that they're not saying we need more bodies, we need more bodies. And we're like, okay, but you know, you may not get your bonus because if we keep hiring people, then the gross margin is going to plummet. That f- helps them to focus a bit more on efficiency and effectiveness of the service delivery. Right?
0: Makes absolute sense. Now, as we go through these uh, sort of metrics, can you give us an idea of what you see as best in class? Um, And what would red flag for any MSP listening to this, if they're just getting hold of their metrics and looking at their gross margin, what's really good and what is something to be concerned about? Yeah. So
1: gross margin uh, can be as high as 70%. That is not necessarily something that you should shoot for out of the box because it's difficult and it often requires a level of standardization in your stack and your client base that is not typical. Uh, what is more typical is probably between the the forty to and fifty percent range on service margin. Uh, that's that I would say you know fairly standard for a well performing MSP. Uh, if you're in the thirty to forty, you've got some work to do, but you're not probably not suffering either. Uh, but it definitely will impact your bottom line. If you're below 30, then you're probably going to struggle with profitability just regardless, right? So and and I would say that's similar in uh, how you would view individual contracts, right? So you first view the macro view of the service delivery from you know sort of all of the service delivery unit together. And then if that's a problem, start to zero in on some of the clients. And similarly, if you're over 70% gross margin on a client contract, you better be very comfortable with the fact that they see value in that because otherwise there's some risk there that you're potentially uh, overcharging them. Similarly, if you have a contract under 30%, certainly under 20%, or in some cases negative, right? Like there are a number of of clients in any MSP that are actually unprofitable, but people still justify it. Well, you know, they pay us eight thousand dollars a month. Well, okay, but you know, that eight thousand dollars gets eaten up pretty good, pretty quick when you spend ninety five hundred on servicing that contract. What's the point of this, right? We're not here for the money, we're here for the profit, right? Um, so another one that that uh is important would be uh EBITDA. Uh, which is uh, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation. uh, And that is uh, an amortization. And that is a a really good measure as just how much free cash flow does the business spin off. And this one usually gets uh, used as a reference number in M&A a a lot. So it tends to get a lot of focus and industry attention. Um, uh, If you're, again, for benchmarks numbers, you you can see this as high as 25% EBITDA, which is bananas, awesome, Performance—it's possible, but again, not really standard practical. So, if you're performing over twenty, you're you're killing it. If you're between kind of twelve to fifteen, you're doing fairly well, and that's what I would suggest people try to focus on. Uh, if you're hitting of t- uh, percentage of twelve to fifteen percent, you're doing very well. Uh, if you're kind of under six, then you know you're, you're going to struggle again, right? So uh, all of this is where do you, where are you right now is really important when you're using any type of benchmarking. So I always tell people like don't focus on what is best in class. If if you do, then just understand it as a reference of what's possible. But you always have to understand what is our baseline and how can we get better from there. That's how you view ve- benchmarks, right? Mm. Uh, some other numbers would be client churn. So you definitely don't want more than say 10% churn in your client base. Anything over 20% on an annual basis is murder. And the reason why is that it's incredibly difficult to grow a profitable business if you're constantly dropping money out the bottom, right? So if you have less than a 5% client churn, especially if it's voluntary client churn. So you know in the industry you'll always have clients that get bought by somebody else or uh, they go out of business. For example, like that's not necessarily client churn that you can you can. Uh, Effect, But if you're losing clients on a regular basis, uh, that makes it, you know, um, uh, amplifies the difficulty in growing your top line if you're losing out the bottom all the time. Uh, Another important one be employee churn, right? So, there is a serious hidden cost in in losing staff. And this will become a real, real issue over the next year and a half because uh, we're, uh, the, the term being used right now is the great resignation. And yeah. there's estimates that suggest as high as 40% of staff will choose to leave their current job for something else. And whatever that else is, is, is to be determined. But people are seeing this. It's really, really difficult to hire good staff right now. And if you lose staff, it's, it can cost as high as 110% of their annual salary. So people think, well, you know, I, I lost two guys this, this, this past six months, and, uh, I'm going to try to replace them, but the more uh, they don't factor in the soft costs of doing that, right. That there, there's an incredibly high amount of, of, cost in that churn, you lose tribal knowledge, you have to retrain the staff, you have to wait for them to come up to speed and become as productive as that person that left before. So the co- the hidden costs of employee churn are, are massive. And then other measures would be year over year growth, right? You want to see kind of at least 10% year over year growth would be good. Uh, and if you're doing over 20% year-over-year growth, that's excellent. And I've seen some companies do way above that, but you know that's all circumstantial and depends on sort of the maturity of your business and your focus on uh, the sales and marketing engine as well. Um, and then another one that is really important is a percentage of your your revenue that is MRR, and I'd like to see this above 75% but not too far above 75%. Because you want most of your revenue to come from monthly recurring revenue, uh, Build on the first of the month, usually through time, some type of uh, direct debit. Uh, so you're limiting a lot of your costs and you're covering all of your costs on day one. But you also want NRR in, as a factor in that, uh, sorry, non-recurring revenues, NRR as a component of your business because you want to be able to demonstrate to yourself uh, from a business standpoint that clients are, are continuing to invest in their technology stack. So if they're not buying new product and projects, it's not necessarily a badge of honor to say we're 99% MRR. Well, okay, but you know, at, at over two or three years, that's going to become problematic if you're not focusing your, your clients on, on that project funnel. And quite honestly, the project funnel is often viewed as a necessary evil or a service to an end, right? Like that, that this is all in service of the, the MSA, uh, when in fact the MSA, uh, re- the MRR revenue should be covering your operating costs. It helps to keep the lights on, but if you want to boost your profitability, a lot of that comes through the consistency of developing that project funnel. You don't make a ton of money on, on product, unless you're selling sands and stuff like that. And that's, that stuff is typically reserved for the VARs, but you, And, you know, again, workstations and stuff like that, you're going to make eight points, 12 points if you're lucky. So that's not really where you're making your money. Uh, but it does help with the revenue. But you certainly want pro- uh, projects uh, to be done well and done profitably. If you're billing them properly and structuring them properly, you can get as high as 65% margin on projects. But you know, a lot of people they break even or lose money on projects because they just don't pay attention to it. It's it's you know, get it done when you can get it done, and let me know when it's finished. It's the basics of project management and an MSP in in, in a lot of cases.
0: Yeah. Wow. This is absolute gold. And guys listening, you see now why Todd is my go-to guy for all things MSP metrics in the industry. This is a man who knows his way around uh, the metrics within the managed service provider industry. So many questions that I want to ask here. Uh, first thing I would ask is about the year-on-year growth. Now, I was speaking to Amy Babinchak over at uh, Sell My MSP. We were doing an event with Cisco the other day. And Amy actually urged caution um, if your year-on-year growth is too high, uh, consistently high. Yeah. So Amy was saying, you know, if you're looking to exit the business and suddenly, you know, the business has got 60%, 70% growth um, uh, one year, it actually looks quite bad. Would you sort of concur with that that view? Uh, I
1: personally don't know how it would be viewed from a valuation standpoint, but from an operation standpoint, it's incredibly problematic when you grow too fast. And I often caution people in this around, um, being thoughtful about how many clients you can onboard at a, at, a, at a time right like most organizations regardless of size if you try to onboard 6 to 8 clients a month you're going to end up completely fragmented and it, it really drives down the efficiency of the overall team most well-run organizations you can onboard 2 clients quite easily 3 clients hopefully 4 clients starts to get a little problematic and that is indicative of that growth ratio if you're growing at 70% year, you're going to have staffing problems, you're going to have integration problems, you're going to have leadership issues, right? All of those things. It's it's incredibly difficult to manage that type of growth. It's not impossible. And it can give you a lot uh, if you're able to grow the business effectively at that fashion. But it's a bit like running the engine hot and just hoping that, you know, that you're not blowing out some pistons and th- oil goes everywhere and the whole thing
0: grinds to a stop, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Now, before we move on from financial metrics, in terms of the clients that you work with, managed service providers, and I know you work with MSPs all over the world, which of those metrics are reviewed on a sort of an annual basis, which on a quarterly basis, and which, if any, uh, you know, have got a daily or a weekly sort of a management review? I would say mostly with the
1: the, uh, the financial metrics, you would maybe kind of keep tabs on the finances on a weekly basis, but maybe not paying too close attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, you definitely want to be monitoring on a monthly basis and doing a pretty deep dive on a quarterly. Uh, annually for sure, all of these. So like for example, gross margin on, on service delivery is is for sure done on a monthly basis, but it makes more sense on a three month trend because you may have a have a month where you just buried a ton of time in a particular client for a particular yeah. purpose, but on trend, it's not really a big deal, right? So some of these things are more meaningful on a, on a, on a quarterly basis than they than they are on a, a single a single instance in a month. Uh, similarly, EBITDA is absolutely a quarterly review uh, and an annual review. Uh, Client churn, employee churn, year over year growth, those things are much more of an annual view of the business.
0: Yeah. And for anybody listening to this, perhaps, and again, uh, uh, frantically making notes here, again, we're going to put all of these in the show notes. So please, if you're driving or walking, don't worry about uh, committing all of this to memory. Todd has got some incredibly good blog posts that we'll share with you on all of these topics. But for anybody listening to this and saying, you know what, I don't know any of these figures and we just want to get started where would they turn in the first instance would it be their psa would it be their accounts package would it be going out and um you know getting something like bright gauge if somebody wanted to immediately get a feel for their business uh, based on metrics where would they first turn
1: i would suggest the accounting packages is a better place to start the psa can tell you these things but in most cases the psa is not well managed enough to be representative. And even when it's done very well, like you're still gonna end up with at least a five to 10% variance in a lot of cases. If it's unmanaged, then you, know, you can see as high as 20 to 50% variance in these numbers between the PSA and the, and the accounting package. The accounting package uh, for most organizations is not detailed. And one of the things that is lacking from monitoring these in a particular way is that the COGS are usually not loaded above the line in the service revenue. So that you pair those things up. It's usually just sort of here's revenue, here's our general um, our, our general gross margin, But all of the employee costs and tool costs are below the line. So you're probably going to see, you know hey awesome we're doing 60 to 80% uh, gross margin on services but you know actually it doesn't take into account the cogs associated with that service delivery including salaries and tools costs so there's some work that needs to be done in a lot of those accounting packages to kind of restructure the view of that but the very least you want to look at you know what is our gross margin uh, what is my sales and general administration costs so sgna and then what is your net margin and hopefully your ebitda percentage uh, all of those are, are pretty broad numbers that most accounting packages should give you a pretty good reference on for sure.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering as well, in terms of MSPs listening to this, in terms of benchmarking their performance, financial performance, we'll move on to service delivery very shortly, benchmarking themselves against other MSPs, we see peer groups out there um, I used to be a part of HTG, which is now Connectwise Evolve, um, and we used to use Service Leadership Index. We've had Paul Dipple, uh, incredible chap, on the uh, podcast talking about you know benchmarking against other MSPs. Are you a fan of benchmarking? Uh, do you use any tools? Is there anything that our listeners should be looking out for? Uh, so I, I admit I'm
1: I'm what I refer to as a Dipple disciple. So uh, I have followed Paul Dipple. Like first time I went to a session, I was like, oh, my God, this stuff is gold. And, and I was writing down everything frantically. So they have they have one of the best uh, resources in the industry for uh, active benchmarking. Um, but there's a bit of a sort of a survivorship bias in some of those numbers that, that you know, if you're performing well enough and you're participating in a service leadership peer group, then you're probably doing better than most, uh, I would say. I don't know if that's true. And I, I think Paul would, would push back against that, saying that, that the service leadership numbers are probably more representative than that. Uh, but regardless, I would say the benchmarks are interesting and they tell you what's possible, but they don't necessarily tell you what's practical for your business. And that's where I think people misuse the benchmarks. So the reason that I'm I'm quite open with, with the benchmarks and try to share this information a little is just to crack open what people can use as a reference, again, for what's possible. Am I doing good or great or terrible. That is good to understand, but it doesn't tell you what to do with it, right? So one of my expressions is uh, knowledge is easy, execution is hard, right? And that goes with a lot of the information that I share. And the reason I'm very comfortable sharing all of this information is that it doesn't tell you what to do with it. And it certainly doesn't tell you what your business needs to do with it, right? That is a much more personal uh, thing that that requires a little analysis and understanding what are we doing? What are we not doing? What do we think we could influence, right? So uh, the benchmarking is good, but don't take it too literally. And you know, one of the things that I suggest to people is anytime that you're going to set a goal, especially if you're using a benchmark, is that you have to start with something simple. Because if you say, Uh, you know, for example, our gross margin is currently 20% and best in class is 70. So by the end of next quarter, let's try to be at 65%. That's a completely impractical goal. And everyone's going to be seriously deflated when you completely miss the mark on that. So to say, okay, we're at we're at 20, 25% gross margin uh, by the end of the quarter. Let's see if we can hit 30. That's a very practical ask. And then everyone gets a w- little wind in their sails and uh, uh, everyone feels good about some level of accomplishment. And then you continue to kind of ratchet things up and try to achieve more. That's more m- a more practical approach for it is you have to understand where you're at in order to set a reasonable goal. Yeah.
0: And for anybody listening to this and thinking who's this Paul Dipple guy and why do Todd and Richard think so highly of him, go back and listen to Tub Talk episode thirty-one when I interviewed Paul. Um, it was a very long-form uh, interview, but uh, trust me, there is some absolute gold in there. And uh, perhaps you will become a, a Dipple disciple in the same way that Todd and I am. <laughs> He's an industry genius for sure. <laughs> he is. So I'm very conscious of time, and the time we've got uh, left together, Todd. Let's move on to service delivery. So. Lots of uh, listeners to this show, uh, you know, like me, perhaps like you, come from a uh, technology-based background, are very good with fixing tech, are going to be interested in, you know, they get into this industry because they like helping people, but they help people based on gut feeling, as opposed to actually measuring it. So you mentioned some service delivery uh, KPIs, some service delivery metrics. Let's jump into a little bit and, and, and see what's good and what's not so good there. So the first one that you mentioned was um, average time to acknowledgement of tickets. So first of all, explain what you mean by that and what's what would be a good percentage or not so good?
1: Yeah. So the really most important part of this is uh, your automated responder that is sends an automated email to the client saying, hey, we have your ticket in queue. That is not acknowledged. That does so not count. That does, does, not, does count. not count. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, hey, our acknowledgement is 30 seconds. That's the time that it took for the system to email back to the person. No, no it doesn't so much. count. So much. Yeah. So this is a, a person emailing or phoning the client back to acknowledge, hey, we have your ticket. This is the expectation that you can have on when we start to work on this. And this is fundamental to service delivery: is communication buys you a ton of grace, right? If you just leave the client in limbo without them understanding uh, when they might get service, then they get un- the people hate the, the the mystery of this, right? Yeah. They they send a ticket in, it goes to a black hole, and they never hear from buddy uh, from somebody for a day and a half. That's incredibly frustrating. Doesn't matter as to whether or not you're able to fix it, you have to keep the client updated. So that that's where the acknowledgement is is incredibly important. Uh, Best in class in this is going to be under 15 minutes. Um, And what's typical is probably 30 minutes and uh, 30 minutes to an hour. Um, But I see a lot of organizations really striving for this to get it, you know, under 10 minutes in some cases. So it's practical, depending on how you
0: structure this. Um, Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so I think you know I've been asked this question: if you were to start an MSP again, Richard, and firstly I'll say I'm not going to. I'm not going to competition with you guys, and I think that goes for you as well, here, Todd. Um, But if I were to start an MSP again tomorrow, I think I would focus on uh, average time to acknowledgement of ticket because most small businesses that I speak to they just want rapid response. Once you set their expectations on the ticket and that absolutely fine. But as you say, Todd, they just don't want to think as though they're emailing or calling or whatever, and it's going into an abyss and not knowing when they stand. So super important.
1: Yeah, a really good key indicator of this is uh, a lot of cl- a lot of MSPs still send techs on site for an occasional visit. And what they tend to find is that tech that shows up gets mobbed by people saying, Oh, the tech guy's here. Hey, I got this problem. Can you come over to my desk and help me out with this? That's an indication that your your time to acknowledgement is an issue. And what it tells is that there's a lack of trust in the service desk. Those on-site visits are not as necessary as people think they're a psychological artifact demanded by the clients and they don't actually provide a ton of value. If you can actually get the clients to trust that if you email or phone, someone will get back to you and keep you updated as to when you can expect service, that's better than having a client a, a client visit because the client visits are expensive uh, for, for you and they're impractical because it forces people to wait days and holding on to a ticket until someone magically appears in the office. So if you're struggling with the text the being mobbed or clients demanding on-site visits, focus on that, that top end of that service
0: funnel. That makes a lot of sense. So average time to acknowledgement, under 15 minutes, we are doing very, very well. Then of course, we talk about, so it's no good if we acknowledge the tickets, but then spend forever fixing them. So average time to resolution, what's good and what's bad?
1: Yeah so you uh, probably best in class here is going to be uh, uh 4 hours for resolution on average um you know in in a lot of cases you you want to see sort of an hour spent on a ticket right so average hours uh, spent on a ticket is 1 hour um but you know the, the 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 benchmarks on this can be as high as 4 to 8 hours the distinction here is that's important is that this is SLA time not elapsed time and that's a difficult thing in some cases to explain to people that this does not mean that, Hey, because, you know, I may have spent three hours to resolve this ticket, but it took three days to close it. That's different because you're not responsible for the chasing back and forth of some person logs a ticket. I emailed them. They didn't get back to me the next day. They told me to call at 10. I called, they weren't available. They called me back at 11, missed me. I called them back at two, right? There's a lot of that, that back and forth. There's some great tools like times S for example, that can help to offset some of this, the, the back and forth and chasing people around. Um, But the SLA time is what you're focused on here. So that's the time that the ticket is open. So a good little practical tip on this one is uh, use in progress uh, what I typically set in the PSA as WIP, so work in progress is the ticket title, only when the ticket is actively being worked on and open. And a tech should only have one, sometimes two tickets in WIP. And that is a great indication of when people have left tickets open that they're not mm-hmm. actively working on anymore. So a service manager can kind of hawk the the, the statuses of the ticket, notice that, you know, hey, Chris has the, the four or five tickets open. You know, this one hasn't was touched this morning, I think he just accidentally left it open, and that
0: helps to control that SLA timer, right? Got it. So one or two tickets for, per technician. Work in progress. They can be juggling, you know, dual screens, doing a couple of things at once. But uh, anything more than that, uh, you speak to the engineer, and if they say, "Oh, I'm waiting for the client," well, that needs to be a status change. That needs to be, you know, waiting on, on client interested. So the next uh, service delivery metric you mentioned was kill rate. Explain a little bit more about that again.
1: Yeah, so kill rate is it's a it's a, a breakage specific term um, uh, there's two types of ways to view this. So the kill rate is um, if you opened 60 tickets in a day and closed 60 tickets that day, then you have 100% kill rate. That doesn't factor into uh, to a f- uh, consideration whether or not you opened and closed the same 60 tickets in the day. Right. So that would be different. That's um, a, f- a metric that we used to use at FM called TNT, today, not tomorrow, was our metric for that. So that's slightly different, not sort of what we're considering here. But you want to have a positive closure rate, at least 100% percent kill rate because what that says is that you're able to keep pace with the inbound tickets and that you're not going to end up with the sink overflowing because, you know, you've only closed 50% of tickets today and only 50% of tickets yesterday and only 50% of tickets the day before that. Well. That means there's a serious backlog of tickets. So in general, you want it. You want 100% or above, which means that you're kind of clearing the backlog and not
0: ending up with a t- with a glut of tickets that are that are uh, starting to pollute the board. Got it. That makes absolute sense. So average hours per ticket is another metric you mentioned. Again, explain the background towards this one. Yeah, so this is a measure of efficiency. So
1: how, how, how much time does each individual ticket take to close? And what I find is organizations that don't tend to focus on this, it's anywhere from two to six hours, uh, which is a lot, right? If you think of that, then yeah. you know, uh, a tier one closing uh, tickets with, on an average of two hours can probably only close three or four tickets a day in the time that they have to work. Versus if you crush that down to 30 minutes, then all of a sudden you can triple the amount of tickets that they can close in a day and it shouldn't really feel that stressful. This is not. This is not to keep in mind. This is not to drive people around a pressure cooker or you know the sweatshop of, of closing as many tickets as possible. Uh, it's just simply that you know the tickets should be fairly simple and routine. There should be documentation for it. There should be standard issues that pop up, and not everything that comes to the service desk should be some strange gnarly issue that requires escalation to tier three and takes six hours to close. Uh, that is usually an indication that that your systems and processes are not mature enough, or your standardization in your client stack is so out of whack that everything is some unique snowflake to close. So you should be seeing this as as low as 30 minutes, but that's a very, very standardized, well-tuned machine. Uh, You should be uh, probably aiming
0: for one to 1.5 hours per ticket. Got it. And is there any granularity over these metrics that we mentioned? So you mentioned, you know, first, second, third line there. Is there any value in breaking down these metrics by the different uh, disciplines within the business?
1: I mean, you could uh, if you want to get specific about certain departmental performance, for example. but you know, I would see that much more on close rate, for example. So tier ones should close ten to twenty tickets a day. Tier two should close five to ten a day, and tier threes you know up to five. But you know, they they often deal with some strange gnarly issues and have to work with uh, uh, vendor support and stuff like that. So they can end up with tickets that are literally taking all day. So that one's a sure. bit of a variable. But you know, up to five, three to five tickets a day, I would say for for tier three. Um, the out au- the average hours that it takes to complete is not necessarily as relevant because that should be
0: fairly uniform, right? Yeah, makes absolute sense. Next metrics you mentioned is one that I think is massively, massively overlooked in our industry, especially as we are in the service industry, and that's uh, CSAT. Customer satisfaction. Now, we've spoken to Andrew Wallace from Smallback. There's lots of tools out there in the MSP market to make this easy, yet there's still so many MSPs not measuring CSAT. Tell us why it's important, Tom. Yeah, this
1: is so every measure that you, you have use as a KPI, you should always think of what is sort of the countermeasure or the perverse incentive, is what it's often described as is uh, if you say, I want you to close as many tickets as possible, well, be careful what you ask for because they <laughs> may just start randomly closing everything, like, hey, I reached out to the client, they weren't available. To close, uh, you know, hey, I think I resolved this, close. Right? And what you're going to end up with is the clients pushing back saying like, no, like this isn't fixed. Stop closing the ticket. Right, So you need a countermeasure around client satisfaction to ensure that there's quality closure. Uh, so what you should be seeing is definitely north of a 90% positive feedback on CSAT. And one of the important parts of CSAT is I tell people... Uh, you know, do you have CSAT scoring? And they're like, oh yeah, well, we use the PSA survey. Well, okay, mm. then you don't have CSAT scoring because if you use a link-based survey, you're gonna see three to 5% of your tickets get uh, some type of feedback. If, if, you that, if that, that, if yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you have a CSAT system with a one-click feedback system where it's the little icons on the bottom and all they have to do is just click a smiley face or a frowny face, then automatically your feedback ratio will go up to probably 10% if you don't work at it. And if you actually try to tra- train the users, then you can end up with as high as 30 to 40%, sometimes even 50% in, in a really well good, well-oiled well MSP that focuses on CSAT. Um, one other piece that, that is important to, to note with CSAT is that there's actually some really good, important processes that get built out of this. And one of the things that I find really useful is when you get a negative survey, it instantly creates a ticket for the service manager or whoever's responsible for that to phone that user and say, hey, saw that you were unhappy with this ticket. You know, Can you help me explain, can you explain to me what happened and what we, we can do better? And one, that's just great customer service, but also the first time that that happens to a user, the the average response for people is holy crap! You guys actually read that? Like you're paying attention? It's amazing! Like I clicked this button and said I was unhappy. You know, two minutes ago and someone phoned me to fix it. That's amazing, right? That That is how you actually engender a ton of loyalty. And what it helps is people will use the feedback system more because they know that it's not just junk data. Because a lot of these surveys, nothing ever happens with them. So why do people bother? Whereas if they know that you actually use this data, and it, if you're unhappy, that someone will phone you right away and try to resolve something, then they're a lot more likely to give you the feedback on an average uh, uh, on all of their interactions with with those tickets in the future.
0: Yeah, and now you and I are both system and process guys. I would say CSat actually is probably one of the untapped resources within MSPs for being able to kick off system processes. You've just talked if you get negative feedback, it raises a ticket. But likewise, if you get really positive feedback, you know most MSPs are looking for referrals, looking for ways to grow their business. Excellent opportunity to pick up the phone and say, hey, thank you, you're telling us you love us. By the way, is there anybody else we should be speaking to um, you know, about doing business with as well? So fascinating subject. For anybody who listens to this, wants to find out more about CSAT, I did a series of webinars with our friends over at Smileback. Uh, so you can just do a search for a Richard Tubbs Smileback. You will find those webinars uh, out there. Let's move on from CSAT. The final two metrics that you mentioned then in service delivery, aged tickets, and stale tickets. Again, if you could explain the background to that and what good looks like.
1: Yeah, so an aged ticket is, uh, you know, just the uh, a rank of the age of tickets. And you want to basically just focus on oldest to youngest of those tickets. Um, and there's some cleanup that has to happen here, right? Like, I've, you know, <laughs> I'm sure you've seen this in the past as well, and, and probably in your MSP you had this experience of, um, the the 380-day-old ticket. I don't think anyone <laughs> needs that ticket anymore. If this Did was actually not? an issue, someone would probably have done something with this. Uh, uh, you know, And often that's proactive tickets, like, hey, this is a good idea. We should do something with this in the future, like maybe, right? But from a service standpoint, you should really not have tickets that are more than 90 days old. You should definitely try to have no tickets over 60 days old. And if you're doing it well, you should have a very few number of tickets that are over 30 the day, 30 days old. Then there may be some practical reasons as to why they're that old, but in general, you want to keep the the tickets as young as possible and not let them kind of age out over a month. Uh and again, like it just becomes expensive, it becomes an issue of support, it becomes a resourcing issue, all kinds of things. So that that's sort of the uh, this is more just sort of a uh, a measure of pushing things down and and kind of keeping a cap on things and rallying the team around, okay, you know guys, we got 20 tickets that are over 60 days old. What can we do with these? I need you to focus on this week and figure out how we can drive these to resolution. Bring me whatever you need and I will help to support you and make sure that we I get you the resources in order to close this. Do you need escalation with, with Microsoft? Or, you know, do you want to pay for support or some some other issue to, to drive this to resolution? Then that's what you want to focus on. Stale tickets is slightly different they often get confused. A stale ticket, I usually set as a ticket that has not been touched in three or four days, depending on sort of the cycles. And this is paired with the fact that techs should generally not have more than 20 tickets in their queue. And the reason I suggest that is that it's really difficult and time consuming to float that many tickets if you have to update all of them on three or four, on a three to four day basis. And the reason why is that, Uh, You don't want to just say, uh, you know, Hey, this, this ticket is waiting for a vendor and it's a week old, right? Okay. Well, have we called the vendor to see if they forgot to call us, right? Like what's next here, right? So you want to make sure that people are accountable to floating the tickets so that they're more likely to pay attention to them and want to get them off their, off their queue. Right. I like, I don't want to have to be updating this ticket. I really wish the vendor would call me back you know, here are the things that I need as as far as support from the organization or some peer vendor. Um, and that just becomes sort of a challenge for both the individual tech, but eventually the service manager as well Is what can we do with this, right? Like I'm not able to solve this. It's been, it's been sitting around for a while. It's stale and it's starting to age, right? It just helps to give you that focus of, of, of the fact that we're in the service industry and you need to keep people updated with what's happening. So just uh, setting a pulse every three Three to four days to say, you know, uh, there's nothing I can do with this ticket. I'm waiting until October 11th for the vendor to get back to me, and I'll set a follow up on uh, October 8th to make sure that that uh, we're all set up for whatever the next step of this this uh, this ticket is. Right, so just kind of keeping the keeping the hope alive that we can close that ticket one day, basically.
0: Yeah, makes absolute sense. You know, Todd, I'm a huge fan of uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done, GTD methodology. David Allen talks about what's your next action. When I was running the MSP, the service desk there, when we looked at stale tickets, it was like, um, you know, do a sweep every single day if you can of the tickets that are in there and set your intention for the next action. As you say, you know, if it's with the vendor, have we phoned the vendor? Have we checked what's going on here? If not, do it. If we have and we've not heard back, the next action should be chase them, then escalate them and things like that. It's it's really simple, but I think it's a hugely underrated skill for, for, for service desk managers and service desk engineers. So, um Yeah. Fascinating yep. stuff. So, we've gone through a lot of metrics here. We've gone through financial metrics, service delivery metrics. And again, I'll remind everybody that's listening don't worry about frantically scribbling down notes here. We will include links in the show notes on Tubblog to all of the blog posts that Todd have produced with more detail on these specific metrics. But before we come to a close here, I've got to ask you is there any examples that you've come across of MSPs? falling down by relying on gut feeling instead of metrics. I know you're not the sort of guy to say, I told you so, Todd, but have you ever felt like saying, I told you so, you should be measuring these things.
1: Uh, Yeah, a fair bit, uh, both on the positive and the negative, right? So like the positive is like the people that fear the CSAT score being low, it's often not right. Like they're they're probably conscious enough about the service that they're they're at least mini- meeting the minimum mark. Uh, unless you know the the clients are are running for the doors uh, on a monthly basis, you're you're probably doing fine. So don't fear the data. Uh, I guess in that in that case, I I, th- I would say coming back to something we mentioned before, where I see people really going wrong with the measurement of the business um, is is focusing too much on revenue as, as sort of a judgment of, of the business, and to me that still feels like too much of a subjective view of the business. And uh, they tend to want to resolve the issues around cash flow and growth with just revenue. You see, sort of the 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 sort of the um, the less sophisticated owners will tef- will typically just say, "Well, let's get out and do some sales." You know, I got to sell some projects. I got to win some new business. But that actually doesn't correct the issue. You're you're compounding an issue that is more fundamental. So you may grow your business, but end up with the same cracks in the foundation that that created an inefficient delivery. And what people find is like I you know I should be able to sell my way out of this, but all it does is cre- is is create the same problems and amplify the problems that already exist. Where if you had sort of a, a more holistic suite of uh, metrics that you're reviewing in the business, you would say, you know, revenue is fine. We're growing. The growth is not necessarily bad, but our gross margin performance is really, is not, not great. And if we dug a little deeper, it's because the you know our two top clients are absolutely soaking us and taking way more of their proportional uh, 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 their portion of the service desk than is appropriate, and that's probably the best place to start, right? So you don't want to grow the business. You want to talk to the clients, those two top clients that that uh, have a high revenue number but have a very low profitability, and therefore are causing too much stress on the service desk, which causes a lower profitability for the business as a whole, right?
0: Yeah, makes absolute sense, Todd. This has been incredible for anybody listening to this. They've perhaps been out for a long walk or driving in the car. You know, we've come to we're coming to the end of our interview, and they're like, "Holy cow! I've got to go and measure something in my business now because I'm relying on gut feeling rather than measuring by metrics." This is going to be a tough question for you, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you could tell anybody listening to this, hey, you're not doing anything in regards to measurement at the moment, I want you to go away and start measuring these three metrics for your business. What would you say? I'm not saying they're the most important, but the three metrics that every business owner should get started with, what would they be? Uh, I think net profit or EBITDA
1: would be really important because again, it just tells you as to whether or not your business is generating cash, right? Like cash is king. And cash is the blood life of the business, so uh, those things are super, super critical. Um, utilization is one that we didn't even talk about, but right. I would say that's an easy one to focus on because again, it's it's a measure of the efficiency of your service delivery and whether or not you're you're leveraging the uh, the, the 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 resources that you have available. Uh, so utilization, and then. Uh, I would say it's a bit of a it's a bit of a cheat, but I would say the SLA. It's multiple numbers, but the SLA as a as a, a measure of the efficiency of delivery and what the value flow of the service desk and the tickets looks like. That would be a really helpful one as well because it just helps you get a picture of uh, of you know uh, how quickly or not so quickly do the tickets flow through the service desk.
0: That absolutely makes sense. And we'll allow you that third one, uh, even though it's a bit of a fudge, <laughs> it will allow you. <laughs> Todd, this has been incredible. I'm sure that if you are listening to this, you'll join me in thanking Todd for a, just an invaluable session. I've been looking to get Todd on the podcast for so long now. Like I said, we've had a couple of near misses recently. I'm so grateful for you coming on, giving up your time know how busy you are, spending time to sort of educating us on managing metrics and the KPIs there. I know you've already got a a load of raving fans out there on the internet, but if anybody is listening to this, uh, didn't know about your work, now does, wants to reach out to you and continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to find you online? Uh, yeah, you can look for me in LinkedIn. Uh, reach out to me there and
1: connect if you like. Uh, a good, easy u- URL to, to hit is itisabusiness.com uh, because it is a business after all. We are not running charities, people. So make sure you run itasabusiness.com.
0: Yeah. And we'll include all of those details, all of those links, all of the resources, all the KPIs, everything Todd talked about in the show notes that you can find across on Tubblog. Todd, This has been absolute gold. I cannot thank you enough for it. Really, really appreciate it. Final shout out as well. That intermittent uh, email letter that you send out to the community with pouring stuff out that juicy brain of yours, sharing so freely and openly as you do with the community. Anybody listening to this, I would encourage you, go and sign up. If there's one action you take from today, it's go and sign up for Todd's email newsletter for want of a better word there. Todd, thank you so much for today. I hope we can do this again soon. And um, and catch up online because I suspect that we're going to have a ton of questions based on the back of this podcast. So perhaps we can get together again soon and talk uh, more KPIs in the future. Awesome, always happy to nerd out on this stuff. So uh, <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the time, Richard. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. Cheers. This episode of Tub Talk is brought to you by Linode. Visit linode.com forward slash tubtalk and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award winning support, offered 24 by 7 by 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Linode offers the industry's best price to performance value for all compute instances, including shared, dedicated High memory GPUs and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible, allowing you to focus on your customers, not your infrastructure. Visit Linode.com forward slash Tubtalk and create a free account with your Google, GitHub, or email address, and you'll get 100 dollars in credit. That's Linode.com forward slash TubTalk for 100 dollars in credit.